Hello and welcome to another episode of Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Sheff, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today's topic is innovation and energy efficiency, and I am really excited for our conversation with Charlie Fletcher. Charlie is the executive vice president at Mesa Energy Systems, which is a commercial HVAC contractor located in Irvine, California. They offer a variety of services from HVAC maintenance service, retrofit, building automation systems, commercial refrigeration, and chiller services. But as Charlie just noted before we got on here, they are really an energy solutions company. So I'm going to let Charlie introduce himself. Charlie, Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little about yourself and a little bit about Mesa. Thanks, John. So Mesa, we started at my garage in 1983 in Costa Mesa, California, and we wanted to save energy. We had hooked up with some of the early innovators in energy. So we called it Mesa Energy Systems, and it was a garage in Costa Mesa, so that kind of made sense. But Mesa stood for Managed Energy Systems Application. So from day one, we kind of were known as innovators. We were kind of known as thinking outside the box, but we really had to work hard the first five years. And then after about five years, when we established ourselves, we started really growing and expanding. I took on a new partner. And one thing we learned in the last 38 years is the most important thing you can do is build a culture. So we built a culture based around work hard, play hard, have fun, and family comes first. And now that COVID's come on, I'm starting to think maybe it should have been work smart because I think we worked too hard. But <laughs> at any rate, as VFDs came on in the 90s, what really changed our reputation is we jumped headstrong into TurboCore. It established us as an energy solutions company. And from that point on, we got started being known for bringing technologies to market. And because of that, we started being asked by customers to tell them what was going on. You know, what's going on next? We started giving webinars. We started giving training. And... Basically, we became known as the innovators in our industry. I think our industry traditionally is, they do the same thing. They're conservative. We've always been risk takers. We really get excited about trying new technologies. And I think that for me to be just an HVAC guy would have been boring. So it's been a lot of fun. And I think the biggest lesson has been, if you build a great culture, you build a great company. And that's been really fun for us. Well, you're practically a legend in the industry now. But like you said, when you first started, you really took a risk on new technologies. I mean, was it difficult to convince customers to go this way in a traditionally pretty conservative industry where customers don't really want to take risks on their core business or their HVAC system in their buildings? One of the things we did from day one, which I think really established us as a company, is we always do the right thing, no matter what it costs. So nobody really felt they were taking a risk for us. And that was my big concern when we did all this TurboCore work because we did all this work with a new technology. And I'm thinking, man, if this doesn't work, we're going to go back and replace all these compressors. The customers we have, the long relationships, I have customers that I've known since 1987, 1986, and they still call me. And so there wasn't such a risk with us because they knew even if it didn't work, that we'd make it right. For those of you who don't know, so TurboCore is uh, Dan Foss's flagship oil-free compressor. It's an incredible technology can turn down and turn up very quickly. It's very quiet. It doesn't use oil, so there's not a lot of maintenance. But this was really an unknown technology back then. And you weren't just buying the chillers, right? You were doing a lot of compressor retrofits with it. Yeah, we did a lot of compressor retrofits. And to be honest with you, when TurboCore first came out, they, the inventor came around with it in his car. And then 
until Danfoss got involved, we didn't do anything with it. I told these guys, you know, if we put all this time into this thing and you guys go away, what I'm going to do. So we really didn't jump into Turbocorn until Danfoss became their partner. And that's when we went for it because we figured Danfoss was stable. It's a great story. And talk a little bit about these compressor retrofits you're doing, how complex that is. And really nobody else is doing that or was doing it at least, right? Yeah. So we have some real experts on our team. Some of the stuff we did that was pretty cool was we went in to hospitals in California, these smaller hospitals, there's this Oshpot thing in California where you have to, I always tell people, if I put something on the roof in California, the roof will fall, but the air conditioner will still be there. <laughs> so what we were able to do is convince Oshpot, the California regulatory um, agency for hospitals, that we were going to do a compressor driveline retrofit. So what we do is go into a chiller and take off like a fixed speed screw compressor and put in three or four turbo cores. And Oshpod would consider that just a compressor replacement. So we were basically cutting the energy when it first came about a third of the cost. Hmm. So we could literally go in, do a retrofit and have less than a two year payback with the incentive. So we did a lot of hospitals. And then in California, there's what's called built up DX, like big systems with old giant compressors, those ones that make a lot of noise, the reciprocating compressors. So we went into those buildings and we did one right by the Orange County Airport that was 500 tons. That mm -hmm. So we actually did that job and that's what put us on the map because they got such a great payback. They let me bring people in and give uh, dinner and learns and lunch and learns and walk them through the building. And that's what launched it. But these giant built up DX systems, we've done, we've done the Pantages Theater, the Wiltern Theater, and we've done so many buildings in LA. In fact, when Dan Foss decided to get out of the retrofit business, the Ricardo, the CEO, called me up and said, you're the only guy I'm bummed about doing this with because uh, we did so many. <laughs> but for us, it's, you know, we're, we're really the only game in town. That's good and bad, right? Yeah, I think it cuts both ways. Let's talk about California and how it's responding to the current pandemic. We're currently a year out. What are your customers talking about in terms of COVID and how are you helping them get their facilities ready to bring people back to the office? Well, over the years, we've watched what I call the energy pirates, where the magic black boxes that have been going on for 30 years that did nothing. And so when this happened, I told my partner, Bob Lake, I said, Bob, we've got to control the message. So we put together a technical team that I headed up and we did lots of research, looked into ventilation, looked at everything else, and we decided on bipolar ionization. And uh, that's kind of a relatively new technology. We've been doing a lot of that. The schools in California right now, we're, we're getting a ton of opportunity with schools because of all the money. There's an assembly bill that came out in California that's giving money for schools so they can reopen regarding ventilation. And then there's a huge national play towards schools. And so we're going in and either adding equipment that can filter the room continuously, or we're doing all sorts of air balance, test and balance, recommissioning around outside air. That's a huge opportunity that just opened up about this month. Prior to that, we've been going in and doing controls, opening up outside air more, purging buildings, doing all sorts of stuff like that with customers. There's a lot of people like in the smaller commercial office that are not as worried, but some of the bigger campuses that we have are really concerned about it. So you're seeing the bigger institutional people and the bigger places and the government people being more concerned. Small commercial landowners or owners like under 100,000 square feet don't seem as concerned. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. But schools are super concerned. I think it's about risk management for public institutions, for large corporates. But you've been 
in terms of innovation, like you talked about over the course of your career, so concerned with efficiency, with operations. Now you're here adding increased ventilation, increased filtration. That, of course, kind of is at odds with energy efficiency, or is it? I mean, how are you advising your customers to make that balance? Well, and this is where it's getting interesting. So that combined with California wanting to get rid of natural gas by 2045 and electrify America, I am not 100% in agreement with this just yet. I don't think we're ready, but what we are looking at now that people want more ventilations, now we're looking at heat recovery or heat wheels or whatever. If people want to use more ventilation, the only way we're going to get the efficiency is to recirculate, to have a heat exchanger and bring that air back from the building. So we're actually starting to look into that. We're looking at heat recovery chillers. We're looking at heat pumps and things like that in preparation for natural gas going away. So I think it's all tied together in a sense that we have to address getting rid of natural gas. And in some of the conferences I've been involved in, it looks like people are saying we're probably going to increase ventilation. And the only way we're going to be able to do that successfully, in my opinion, is to somehow take that air and not waste it and just exhaust it back out of the building. We're going to have to figure a way to to reuse it. It is interesting because if you couple the increased ventilation with the natural gas, you could be adding more electric load than you were using with natural gas. There's no doubt. You can't do it. You know, I've been working with some guys trying to figure out a solution that way. There's not enough power in these buildings to get rid of natural gas right now. There just isn't. Yeah. And I think that people are underestimating that. And, you know, when you see all these natural gas laws in cities all over California and, and everywhere else, I think that is a real underestimation. It's not really just a one for one, particularly if you're going to add a lot of outside air. No, it's not. And the other thing that's interesting is if we did go to all solar and battery, I think the whole world would be a strip mine trying to get the precious metals. <laughs> well, so that, yes, nobody's talking about that. But <laughs> I know they don't want to talk about it. That's a really good point. I think there are a lot of supply chain issues and really just a paradigm shift here moving away from natural gas. And I don't think people have really thought it through. But when you talk with your customers about these uh, new measures for filtration, are they still focused on climate? Are they focused on operations? I mean, what are they really focused on? Is it really just getting people back in the building safely? I don't think anybody's focused on anything, but what they've always been focused on is that's making money, Mm. (laughs) which has been like for years, we've said to people, you know, it's great that you can tell somebody that you're going to save them energy, but it's only 1% of the cost of running their building when you add up salaries and everything else. So they're all focused on how am I going to make money? And yeah, the only way I'm going to make money is to get my customers back in the buildings. And I know a lot of people in either asset management, property management, or ownership. And for example, in Orange County, the commercial rates right around the airport, Orange County Airport, are about three bucks a foot. One of my buddies that manages a lot of buildings was telling me last week that he thinks they're going to go down to two. (laughs) So that's a problem. So I think these guys are more concerned about making money and making their assets pay for themselves. Uh, And on top of that, having to do that with making sure that people know their building's safe. But the flip side of this is we're looking at this ourselves, right? We've got a thousand employees and 20 offices in Irvine, our headquarters where I am. We have 200 people that come to this office. And I've got a group of young people I talk to that like future leaders that I talk to every two weeks. And I'm saying, what do you guys think about telling our people it's time to come back to work? And, you know, we're going, I don't think we can ask them to come in more than three days a week. So this whole thing is now you've got to look at how do you pose this to all your employees? What do you say to them? You don't want to say to them, hey, you got to come back five days a week. Because in Southern California, the other thing that's nice is that a lot of these folks are driving to get here because they can't afford to live in Orange County. They're driving 
an hour to an hour and a half each way. Mm. So they might be more productive to come in two or three days a week, right? So we're not quite sure how we're going to address ourselves asking people to come back. So I think everybody's got the same problem. Yeah, I think that's so interesting talking about trying to get people back to the office and making it safe. But you open this can of worms here, remote working, and it's hard to kind of unring that bell, if you will, and, and get it back. And people are used to it. People don't want to drive anymore. People like the convenience of working from home, whether they're more productive. That's an open question. Yeah. But I think it's going to be hard to go back. And you mentioned rents being lower. Do you think that's what's behind is people are just not going to come back to the office? I can tell you that my son's father-in-law, we're good friends. He's my outlaw, right? He runs a big <laughs> accounting firm, like the fifth biggest in the world behind the big four. And uh, they're going to cut their office size in half. They're not going to go back to their office. They're not even allowed to go to their office until like September. And they're going to cut their space in half. And when you come back, it's not going to be like you're just going to add back 100% capacity. You're going to have to have more space for fewer people with all these restrictions. Yep. So the other thing the commercial guys are saying is that, yeah, they're going to have more space. So really, they're going to need the same space on a certain level. But maybe the best thing that came out of the pandemic is maybe we should have learned to have a better work-life balance way before this. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, that's true. And I think you're right. People are learning to work differently, and, and I don't think that's going to go away. No. But you mentioned some of these technologies that you're using between the increased ventilation and energy efficiency. But do you think that what we have available right now is going to be sufficient to meet our climate goals, our healthy spaces goals, and to make those spaces efficient? What are the technologies you're using most to meet these goals? And do you see anything new coming? I happen to be uh, lucky in that I'm in California and I also know a lot of people. So I'm working with a guy that writes policy and, and kind of guides the utilities in California. And what we started doing about the same time this guy wrote a study is we started doing these uh, approaches to buildings, which are, if you think about like high rises don't have enough room for, for solar. So what we're doing is we're going to these smaller buildings under 100,000 square feet and we're repositioning the buildings. We're taking a 30 year old building and making it probably five years ahead of time. And what these things are called are called load modifying resources. So think about this, you put on solar, you put on battery storage, smart car chargers, controls, upgrade the air conditioning, and you have battery storage and solar and a cool roof. And all of a sudden what happens is these buildings, you know, California already has the duck curve where there's so much solar that the peak has been shifted from four till 9 p.m. So what's gonna happen is if the way to maybe solve this is with these smaller buildings and the utilities use them as like a microgrid. And the reason they're called a load modifying resource is that you're going to eventually, we think, within the next three or four years, communicate directly with CalISO that manages the grid, and they're going to say to you, use more power now. And then they're going to say, use less power. And you're going to be able to shut off car chargers. So that's kind of what we're doing now. We've got like three or four buildings we've already done. We're working on some more. And I think this is kind of one of the keys we see. So you take all the technologies we have, and then you create a way to interface with the grid and make that building able to communicate directly and shift power or give power or whatever. That's kind of what we see happening as a the next short-term fix, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. I think grid or interactive buildings are definitely moving ahead. And I just think it's interesting. You know, we talked a little bit on the show before we did a district energy show and we talked about kind of looking at, I think too often we look at buildings as discrete systems in and of themselves, but really the most efficient way is to look at a district or a block or a city as a system and trying to connect that and utilize the resources across those. And I think that's what you're pointing at. Yeah, I am. This is kind of unpopular, but I'm starting to 
start lean towards if they can perfect it, these smaller nuclear plants might be one of the answers too. I mean, it seems like that's getting a lot more press lately. Yeah, I think so too. And I haven't done any of the research, but it seems like having these sort of modular nuclear systems could be a good way to go, but way above my head. Yeah, well, me too so far. <laughs> so you talked about the technology and what's happening. And one of the things I'm really interested in is innovations in business models, because I think that could really open a lot of financial help and a lot of these technologies. How do you see that coming into play in energy efficiency or in commercial space in general? Well, it's funny. We've been working on that. We've been trying to simplify the model. So there were some folks that came out 10 years ago that we tried to work with. The first one, it was sanctioned by the government. So I guess I can mention the name. It was called Transcend Energy. And they had an energy service agreement. And we jumped on and we spent all this time with them. And there was a couple other guys, but these guys were the big one. Then they changed to a company called Sky Energy. They kept getting funding, whatever. And what it was is... The energy services agreement allows an owner to upgrade his building and then pay basically what it is, is if you look at your building and say you spend a million dollars a year on utilities, you would do this energy service agreement with this provider and you would upgrade your building and then you would pay your utility bill and you'd pay the energy services agreement provider. And then that delta is the extra money you make. But the nice thing is this energy services agreement became a way that you could just look at it as like a maintenance contract, like a recurring cost, like a, a cam charge or whatever. So you could pass it back on to your customers if they received the benefit. So if a customer is paying 10 bucks a foot on a gross max lease and you did this energy agreement and they went down to nine bucks, you would get your money back. You'd improve your building. You'd, you know, you'd improve your infrastructure. The problem was if you wanted to get out of it and the terms were really onerous, so we've been working with some guys that finance. In fact, I meet with a bank this week to see if they're willing to do a more modified one. So these energy services agreements, to me, were a really good idea. We just got to get somebody that does it in a, uh, a less onerous way that owners would buy into. Because I think that's one way to do it. Have you heard about those? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I've been thinking about and writing about the split incentive problem for a long time. And I just, it's hard for me to believe that we haven't found a real solution to this between the landlord and the tenant and trying to get this barrier knocked down. Because like you said, it's like when you have a triple net lease or when you have a, a lease in general, the energy portion of it is a very small percentage. Yep. And I just think that it's a barrier that is ripe for the plucking. And if we could get past that, I think that opens up a lot of possibilities. And I think that's one way to do it. Like, for example, on one of those, we call them LMRs, those load modifying mm -hmm. resource. One of the things that we did is we got together with tax attorneys and uh, energy attorneys. And one of my customers did is he and his uh, partner owned the building in an LLC. This guy, we did all the measures and he basically financed the solar and the roof and the battery storage and created an energy company and sold himself back power, mm -hmm. a PPA with himself. So, you know, if you've got the money, you can actually do that. And there's a lot of tax benefits. So people are getting creative. We're looking at stuff like that with people to say, hey, here's a way you can do it. And that helps with like paying back depreciation and things like that. So I'm always looking for creative ways. And I've got some buddies that own buildings that I always talk to about, you know, what do you think about this approach? And that approach is kind of the first step towards this energy of services agreement. But I think right now, when you talk about that split incentive, that's always been complicated. So to me, the only thing I've seen so far is maybe a modified PPA like that or a simple energy services agreement with the LLC that owns the building. So we're exploring that right now. 
Yeah, I've seen some interesting stuff. There's a pilot program going on in Seattle where the utility is basically doing what you said with the modified PPA, but they are contracting to buy that, quote, energy efficiency. And there's also some landlords in Seattle that have uh, regular leases, but they have fixed utility expenses that they charge their customers, and that allows them to then invest in energy efficiency and get their buildings up to date. So I think people are doing some interesting things, but we just haven't seen anything kind of hit the mainstream and really take off yet. I agree. We'll keep working on it. (laughs) (laughs) I know you will. We've covered a lot here. We like to end with kind of a forward-looking question. You know, we've talked about these safety measures and they're not going away, I think. But tell me about how you're planning for the long term with your business. What are you guys looking at for the next five to 10 years? Well, for us, there's a couple of things. One thing for sure is we see the biggest growth potential in, in what I'm calling building integration, integrating buildings with the grid. So we're actually created a, a software company we're working on right now that is designed to basically tie everything that's going on with the building, with HVAC, with occupancy, with the grid, with power production, power usage, and everything like that. I think what we're seeing is the key for us is to, we're going to keep looking for innovation, keep looking for new things. But at some point in time, you can only do so much with an air conditioning coil. You can only do so much with a solar panel. So the next step, in our opinion, is figuring out how you tie all this together, be predictive with it. And at the end of the day, no matter what anybody says, they're not that altruistic. All they care about is how much cash on return do I get? And what are you going to do for me to save me money? So what we're trying to do is find a way to save people energy, save people comfort costs and service call costs, and make the building as efficient as possible and be able to talk with the utility and stay in touch with what's going on with microgrids and whatever's happening with the utility. So we're trying to create some kind of an integration path that makes the building as tight and smart as it can be and also allows it to be flexible for the grid. That's kind of what we're working on. And I think that's where we kind of have an advantage versus our competition because there's not a lot of guys thinking this way or a lot of companies thinking this way, which is a great opportunity for us. But I am somewhat altruistic, so we need more people to jump on to do this stuff. And we definitely need more people like you, Charlie. And it's crazy that you guys have a pretty substantial company with a big footprint, but you'll be able to be so nimble and really look into the future. So uh, we definitely need more like you and more like Mesa. But yeah, thanks for joining us. This was really awesome. Oh, thanks, John. You too. I need to talk to you because I think you know more about stuff than I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to do it anytime you want. You're the legend, not me. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of the Envisioneering Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Charlie Fletcher, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. Again, my name is John Sheff. I'm the Director of Public and Industry Affairs for Danfoss. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinions 
opinions of guests are their own, and Dan Foss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website, computer, or playing device.